Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I am hot off an interview with today's guest, and she left me with such, such good energy, and I'm very excited to share that interview with you. But first, a couple of feisty announcements. First of all, some of you may have noticed for a couple weeks we have a new sponsor, called VJ Shoes. So VJ Shoes, actually apropos to my conversation um, with my guests today about the outdoors are designed for people who really like to get out there on the rough trails. So trail runners, hikers, orienteers, these shoes are for you. So if you uh, have not heard of VJ Shoes, I strongly recommend you head on over to their website. We will put that link, um, we'll put that link in the show notes and uh, check them out. They are really designed for the outdoor lover. So second up, we also have an International Women's Day special happening. Let's see, this comes out. Oh, I guess it will be happening tomorrow if you are listening to this uh, on the first day that it's released. So it is hosted by myself and Celine Yeager. Essentially, Feisty Media is hosting a panel discussion that will be live on Facebook and YouTube. And we'll put this link in the show notes. Um, and myself, and as I mentioned, the hit, the host of Hit Play Not Pause, Celine Yeager, is my co-host. And we'll be talking to four special guests. One is Khadija Diggs, who is a Muslima and a triathlete. We have pro cyclist Allison Tetrick, elite para-athlete Jessica Tuamalea, and host of Feisty's All Bodies on Bikes podcast, Marley Blonsky. So it's going to be a really cool discussion about equity in sport which is actually this year's theme for International Women's Day. And in the conversation, we want to clarify, because I think this is confusing for a lot of folks, like what is the difference between equity and equality? And precisely why is equity necessary when we're talking about women's sports? So spoiler alert, the gist of it is that because each and every woman is different, we have specific needs when it comes to creating equal opportunity in sport. So that's what we're trying to get at. So for example, while equality means equal and opposite, i.e. equal prize money would be a good example of equality. Equity means allotting resources to unique groups in different ways in order to reach an equal outcome. So that is what we're going to discuss on our panel tomorrow. You can watch it live on March 7th at 4 p.m. Pacific. And again, the link for that to come watch will be in the show notes. That episode is also going to appear on this feed on March 8th. So it's a special episode going across all of our feisty podcast feeds on March 8th on International Women's Day. So I hope you'll join us live, but if you can't, just know you can hear it after. So drum roll, please. My guest today is Alison Mariella Desir, and she is multi-talented. She's a founder, an activist, a connector. She's unapologetically straightforward, which we love here at Feisty. She's a great communicator, which comes across in the interview. And she has a passion for community health. 
Allison is the author of the recent book, Running While Black, and she's also a TV host and producer. She's the founder of Harlem Run, which is a New York City-based running movement, and Run for All Women, which has raised over $150,000 for Planned Parented and $270,000 for Black Voters Matter. So Allison and I talk at the beginning of the show, really interesting, about how she learned to continue to, to be her authentic self in different um, scenarios, right from even right from the ability to say her or ask people to use her full name, which is Allison Mariella Dazier. Um, she definitely likes to hold organizations accountable, measure progress, um, hold the industry accountable as well to create equitable employment, leadership and ownership positions and improve inclusion, visibility and access for black, indigenous folks and people of color. Allison's recent book, Running While Black, is a searing expose on the whiteness of running, a supposedly egalitarian sport, and a call to reimagine the industry. And so before we jump over to Allison, I just want to read you a quote from her website about the book. She says, runners know that running brings us to ourselves, but for black people, the simple act of running has never been simple. It is a declaration of the right to move through the world. If running is claiming public space, why then does it feel like a negotiation? Allison, how are you today? I'm doing well. Just finished a run. I'm happy to be here. Wow. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I didn't have time to shower after CrossFit, so I rolled in like sweaty. But I think you look good. So thank we're you. Good. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> Amazing. And we were talking just a minute ago before the show. Um, I asked you about your name because I remember when you spoke at our women's performance summit, you asked us to use your full name, Allison Mariella Desier. Um, and I just thought our audience would be curious about um about that, about the reasons why you were asking that. Yeah, so my given name is Allison Mariella Desir. My middle name is actually a combination of my two grandmothers' names. So one was um, Ella, and was one was Mariana. So my my mother came up with Mariella, and for most of my life, I just used Allison Desir because I felt like Desir was hard enough to say, let alone remember you have the accent, and didn't want white people to struggle with saying my middle name. And then in the course of writing my book, it really dawned on me how you know there were ways that I was um, aware of that I was shifting myself for white people, but with my name, I hadn't really considered that. And, um, and now I, you know, I'm really adamant about people using Alison Mariella Desir when they're in events on any kind of written materials. And it's interesting. Um, there's, I just recognize there's a lot of pushback and sometimes it's not intentional. It's also a very American thing to consider your middle name as optional. And that's not, it might sure it's not, optional. Um, so it's been, it's sort of a, um, a crusade that I'm on now to um, have people recognize me the way that I want to be recognized. And on the larger conversation, it's important to recognize that people can change their name as much as they want, right? Like people can change their identity, this idea that we have to be fixed and, um, you know, not move or not change our minds on things um, is not true. So Yes. For everybody listen, Alice and Mariella Daisier. <laughs> I love it. I love that. You know, um, my daughter, her name, she's named after her grandmother. She's called Rosalie. Um, and she, as she's, she's 12 now, and as she's growing up, I think she's finding that to be a very feminine name because that's not really who she is. So now she's starting to play around a little bit with like different names. So she's currently calling herself Max and we just, I just roll with it, you know, <laughs> just like, that's fine. I'll call you whatever you want. I think that's the most important thing you can do for somebody is, um, acknowledge them the way that they see themselves. Mm-hmm. So long as there's no harm, right? Like your daughter calling herself Max really is immaterial, <laughs> right? So, um, I mean, and that goes into a larger conversation we could have or not, but the way that uh, we are so fearful of people wanting to be their authentic self is is so problematic. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, like sort of shifting yourself uh, to fit in with kind of white culture. What are the other ways that you sort of saw yourself doing that or that you try, have tried to shift? Yeah, oh my God, so many ways from the way that I wear my hair. My hair was a large struggle for me for so long because I hated my hair and I just wished that my hair moved like white girl's hair. So 
I did so many things to my hair. Um, now I, I love my hair. I can't believe I ever hated it. I have locks and I think black hair is just the best hair there is. <laughs> I can't imagine having any other hair. Um, but my weight, I even when I was very thin, I was like 130 pounds and I felt like I was fat because I was around white girls who were 100 pounds and who were just naturally built thinner. Um, the way that I talked, the music that I listened to, um, you know, there really was nothing that was untouched from the white gaze and wanting to fit in, wanting to be accepted. And thankfully, the older I get, and particularly after having a child and seeing and knowing that I want my child to be comfortable in his body, um, I'm just letting go of all of those things. But I still recognize them being there, right? Like, I, there are still times when I see a skinny person or skinny white person and uh, or a model and think, wow, if only I look like that, right? And then I have to check myself and recognize that, you know, there's nothing wrong with other body types and shapes. It's just that is what we ingest <laughs> from the time we're born. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, you know, I've lived in a couple other cultures and I know that like there are ways that I have actually shifted my language essentially to fit in or to even sometimes lived in places where it's second language English and dumbed down my English or um, I lived in the UK for a long time and would use British phrases. Um, and I think like some of that, I like, I wouldn't change because it's like, I wouldn't change it because I like don't want to, everyone to stop a conversation just because of the way that I'm talking. But I think like you're onto something there with like being super mindful about like about how we are shifting our identities in certain you know and I don't want to sound like you know my experience as a white woman in British culture is not going to be the same as like you as like as a black person in American culture like I don't want to sound like that but like it's just like are there ways are, do you sometimes think okay I'm shifting but it's okay or do you generally tend to think that like okay if I can be more authentically myself it goes better for you you know, I mean, I think the, well, one thing I want to say that I thought of recently is I went to Atlanta and right now I live in Seattle and Seattle's very white. And I went to Atlanta and I just was like, oh my God, look at how all these different bodies, right? Like in, in Seattle, I'm around a lot of white people who are smaller and whose um, cultural aesthetic and ideal, the European ideal is like thin, right? And in black culture, um, the, the main aesthetic is to be curvy and have a big butt and um, to be, you know, a, a bigger body. And so when I was in Atlanta, I was just taking in like, whoa, look at how different um, mm -hmm. the aesthetics are, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I didn't change anything about myself, but I just noted, well, I'd probably be a lot more comfortable in my body if I lived in a place that had a different, that centered a different ideal, mm -hmm. right? One that was more in line with how my body is. But Regarding shifting, I think I only shift when there's a matter of my safety, right? At this point, I tried to be my authentic self in all spaces. But, you know, if I if I'm talking to the police, I'm going to be the like the most palatable version of myself so that I'm killed. Right. Like and I think that when I see white men and women, the way that they fight with police and still make it out unscathed. Um, it's such a privilege. Like the minute I see the police behind me, like I almost, I have panic attacks, right? So that is really the only moment that I can think of where I intentionally shift and it's um, for life-saving reasons. Right. That's so, wow. Um, I'm just, I'm wondering, are there things as like, as white people that we can do to help create more space? Hmm. I mean, I think so white people as individuals, not so much as thinking about systems, right? So when I think about um, the idea of professionalism um, and other norms that white people think are universal but are really rooted in white culture, for example, on trails, you're supposed to be quiet. You're supposed to, um, you know, I can't think off the bat right now, but there are these, you know, rules around what you're supposed to do in outdoor spaces or what you're supposed to do in office environments. And a lot of times those are not, things that we've all universally said are mm. inappropriate. They're just things that white people have decided. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think on um, professional spaces and outdoor spaces, rethinking what those norms are. Um, I'm actually working on a project with um, Mass Audubon um, around 
norms in the outdoors because when you go to Mass Audubon, which is it's a big um, outdoor recreation space, as you go into the space, there's this sign with all of the things you cannot do. So it has like an X through music, an X through dancing, an X through food, an X, right? And you're like, you're going into this beautiful outdoor space with all of these rules of what are allowed and who has determined that that is the way to be in the outdoors. Why can't you dance and play music and eat, right? Like as long as you're not harming the land. Right. Rethinking will, and some of them maybe are useful and sometimes, but rethinking who is creating these rules and why are they necessary? Like, again, I, nobody um, should be harmed or feel, uh, feel harmed by, by these things, but, but ultimately like, what does it mean to be professional? Like, well, we just, we all decide that Uh, or white people have decided that. (laughs) So we all have an opportunity to rethink that um, and rethink our spaces. Yeah. Um, I haven't even got to the first question yet, but I I have another follow-up there about like the space, because we're working at Feisty, we're working on a essentially like a nutrition course um, for active women that also includes like understandings of cultural influences, some of the psychological things that affect us around eating, as well as like the physiology of understanding like how food is processed in our bodies um, and the the women specific information around that too, around our cycles, perimenopause, all of those things. Um, And I'm very, very mindful of, of, the fact that, or I'm trying to be mindful, I should say, we are of the fact that like diet culture, it's like a very, it feels like a very white thing to me. Like what you mentioned earlier about like the way that women models look, you know, and still feeling like, you know, we all feel like I feel those those pressures to look that way in a different way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering if there are ways that, um, or how does diet culture like affect you personally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, diet culture is a product of white supremacy, right? Because the idea behind white supremacy, um, it prioritizes this image of people that is unattainable or attainable for very few, right? So you're to be white, you're to be thin, you're to be um, seen, not heard, right? And so because we live in white supremacy culture, it affects white, black people, Asian people, right? It affects everybody, but the origins of it are from white supremacy culture. The thing about nutrition is that nutrition is full of white supremacy culture and all these ideas about, there's actually a book called Eating While Black, and it tells the story of how, um, you know, our foods, and I'm saying our, meaning Black people in this country and throughout the world, and um, our foods have been demonized and have been said to be less healthy than white alternatives, right? So for example, people are obsessed with kale, but people don't think the same way about uh, cauliflower or collard greens, right? Things that are are foods from African-American culture. And you you see the ways that certain foods are labeled, excuse me, are labeled clean or labeled healthy, and that cleanliness and healthiness is really only ascribed to things that are most available to white people. So nutrition itself is steeped in white supremacy, and I think it's important in the course that you're teaching that you recognize that anything that's prescriptive about what foods are good to eat and what foods are less good to eat, if those foods prioritize white Western foods alone, <laughs> then what you're saying is that there's something wrong with foods from our culture, right? Like you can eat very healthy and eat only Indian food. You can eat very cult- healthy and eat only Haitian food, Colombian food, right? But not in this country. In this country, the message is that you must eat all these really bland, tasteless things in order to um, be at your best. Right. Like for endurance athletes, it's always pasta, you know, and or, so to me, what's grilled, wrong? Grilled chicken and rice. I'm like, yeah. are you kidding? Like some of the best athletes in the world are not eating grilled chicken and rice, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> totally. that is the way that, that um, nutrition is whitewashed. And um, I love following people like Alephine Tuliumuk, who's always talking about, um, not always, but who often shares um, cultural aspects of her training and things she eats and stuff she does, right? To recognize that there's no single 
way of taking care of your body, no single food that has to be eaten to take care of your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. Thank you for that. That's yeah. helpful. And I'll I'll get some of those resources from you after too, and and throw them in the show notes. Um, but let's. There's sorry. Yeah, and then we can finally get into it. But there's also, and I can't find her name right now. But I'll I'll find it for the show notes. There's this nutritionist. Um, she's a black woman, and she talks all about this. And I'm always so fascinated because it allows me to rethink like things that I've told myself about what's good and bad. And of course, a good and bad binary is always problematic, but I will give you her name later. (laughs) Okay. Well, speaking of eating while black, (laughs) let's talk about your book, Running While Black. Um, Since, you know, we last heard from you at the Women's Performance Summit, it's been released. What's been, what's been the reception of the book so far? I would say overwhelmingly positive. um, And that, you know, the only, um, the only like nasty critiques I get are on social media. And I think that's because that's where trolls hang out. <laughs> um, but no, it's been, it sparked a lot of really great conversation and the beginnings of action within the industry. Excuse me. I say the beginnings because it's, you know, my book came out in October and it's far too soon for um, any meaningful change to take place, but it's really cool to see the ways that um, people have Um, that stuff in the book has resonated with people, the way that it's also made other people really angry and uncomfortable. Like that's great because that means that something in the book is causing them to rethink something or they're resisting rethinking it, right? Any kind of reaction to something that you read um, is meaningful. So um, I've been really thankful for the reception. I've I did a lot of traveling. I'm still traveling. I get the opportunity to talk to people in person about my book. So I feel really lucky. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'd like to unpack that a little bit. What are the pieces that resonated most with people or where you got the most positive feedback? Yeah. I mean, black people everywhere are thanking me for putting this into words, right? Like recognizing that I don't speak for all black people and that my experience is um, is just one slice of life, right? Like I am a first generation American. My parents came from other countries. I grew up in a middle-class household, was in white spaces all my life. Like that is one story of the many types of experiences that black people can have. But black people are saying like, thank you for putting this into words. Like you're saying the stuff that we all say to each other, but that we never tell white people because it's not worth our time. (laughs) Right. um, And that's a, that's a really interesting thing also that Um, White people often think that they have deep, meaningful relationships with people of color, but those people of color have never actually had conversations around race. And what I say is that if you are not in conversation with your, with people of color around race and identity, then those people actually are not in deep, meaningful relationships with you, (laughs) right? Because we only, and I, again, I'll say I only invest that way in people when there's, um, a sense of safety and a sense that that person um, will try to be an ally, right? And if, if I don't feel like they will, then I'm not going to waste my breath. But anyway, so Black people have felt really seen. White people have, um, it's been an awakening for white people, which on the one hand is very frustrating because uh, white people have the ability to live a life of um mostly ignorance. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, but also really positive that my book could be a starting place for white people and other people of privilege to dig in and understand these issues. Yeah. One thing I really appreciate about you is that, and you've already done, done this for me during this interview is like your ability to create a space where I can like bumble through kind mm-hmm. of a question where I can be, you know, it's like, Oh, did I ask that right? Or what, you know, but I feel like you are very generous that way of like picking up an intention versus uh <laughs> you know what might accidentally spew out. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that. And I think it's it's a practice that I work on. It's part of the fact that I went to school for counseling um psychology mm-hmm. and also that I I'm inherently a community builder, and so I want to bring people together in a way, but um, also recognizing that I have a ton of privilege being, um, you know, in a smaller body, being pretty, being educated. And so I'm able to say things that somebody else might not be able to say because their tone of voice might be taken wrong or the way that they look, or they may be perceived as hostile. Right. So I also 
take that privilege as a responsibility to be in these conversations and also set boundaries when I don't want to be in those conversations. So um, that's, uh, you know, that's a uniqueness I think I have. Yeah, I it, it seems like for the little I know you, you do a great job of it. Um, but you've mentioned a couple of times like trolls and, and anger, kind of some elements of the book that induced anger. Like what are some of those things? I'm also curious about how you deal with that too. Yeah, so, you know, probably the most controversial thing. I mean, I said a lot of controversial things. The thing that people have felt is most controversial is the chapter around the Boston Marathon. And it's really, um, it's actually kind of funny to me <laughs> to see how invested people are in this idea of privilege that they get from the Boston Marathon and how much they want to resist losing that, or they want to resist the feeling that um, they, the fact that they like the Boston Marathon is problematic, right? They want it to be okay that they love this race that's very exclusive and historically white, right? Like, why can't that be okay? <laughs> so people have a lot of trouble with that. Um, then there's also, you know, there's things that I said about my relationships with brands or um, things that I've noticed in the industry that even though I didn't name names or companies, that those companies have recognized themselves in the critique and are very upset <laughs> by it, right? Which, again, if I say something and it registers or it resonates, and it makes you angry, then it means that there's something in there, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so saying at a place of like, well, what does that mean, right? Like people, when I was younger, people called me selfish all the time and I hated it. And it's because I was selfish. <laughs> <laughs> like, because, and that's it. My mom said, you're so selfish. Like you never think about anybody else in the family. And then as I got older, I was like, oh my God, she was so right. Like I, I and that's why it bothered me so much. Like somebody tells me I'm selfish now, I will think about it. And then I can just, I'll be able to like disconnect or detach myself from that attribute because that's not me. I have instances where I'm being selfish, right? But I wouldn't, but I was a selfish person. So anyway, I, I think about those particular brands, people, organizations um, that have really felt upset and written me off. I like to think that they'll come back around at some point and recognize that they there's work to do. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I'm again I'm relating um a little bit with like my journey my journey of change making too uh with women in particular like I came from triathlon and we would you know the things that we would say 5 years ago that would anger people now someone's like asking us to speak on stage <laughs> about that thing. So it's like sometimes it's mind blowing like wow change can happen quickly. So I, I think you're right about that, that some of those places where you're maybe inducing a little anger um, could come around. Are there, do you, are there times when you actually choose to engage with like someone who is angry and like, how would you decide when to stay in that kind of conversation and when to just set a boundary and leave? Yeah. I mean, I don't mind people being angry. I think, you know, I, what I mind is when people are disrespectful and are not coming to, because they want to have a conversation, but because they want to prove that I'm wrong. And it's very clear when, you know, when, how people show up for a conversation. So yeah, I've, I've had conversations with people who are angry, who people who even at the end of the conversation don't agree with me and that's okay. But it's when people make accusations or, um, you know, call me names or just say like, the other day, this black man sent me this long DM about all the things that I should be doing because I'm doing all these other things wrong. And by the way, he's never read my book. He just read an excerpt. And in those moments, I just like laugh. And actually, I put it in my story and I was like, thank you so much for like reorienting me. Where would I be without you? I had no plan for myself without this information you shared with me. Right. Because it's like, I mean, how ridiculous are you? Yeah. Um, so I guess it depends on, um, depends on how the person approaches me and also my mood and my capacity. <laughs> right. Do you have moments where you know, you know, for sure that you've changed someone's mind, like that you remember? Yeah, actually. Um, and th that's really powerful. And, and it's like, if people's minds can change, like, I don't know where we got to this point where you can't teach an old dog, new tricks or like, like that's just not the case. Like, why would we, life makes no sense if there's not the possibility of us changing and growing, right? right. Like, 
And for myself, I know that when I moved, now I'm going a little off topic, but when I moved to Seattle, to Washington, I came here with a like, no guns, like guns are terrible, period. Like even hunting, bad. Like how does anybody have a gun? And then I started learning about this organization called Hunters of Color. I started learning about um, how hunting actually is part of conservation and the importance of hunting, um, hunting, fishing, all of it to um, to maintaining a healthy ecosystem. And I was like, whoa, okay, like all hunting isn't bad, right? Of course, like gun control is so important. There's no need for AR-15s, right? Like all of that. But I now see the nuance in this conversation, right? Like mm. I now see that there are things that are part of um, indigenous culture that are ceremonial. I eat meat, right? So I now can have a nuanced understanding of the argument. Right. And, like that is possible, people, right? So I think we all need to like let our egos go, um, allow for the complexity of issues, allow for the fact that it's not um, for something or against it in every case, that there is gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's, uh, I, it's really interesting. Cause I know like for myself too, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly deciding like, when am I going to put the effort into meeting someone where they're at? If they're, you know, if they're going to yell at me on Instagram um, and, then, and then when am I just like say no to that um, or whatever else in between. So it sounds like you have a great attitude towards. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes I just say like, fuck you to people on Instagram. Like, like sometimes <laughs> I lose it. Like, and and it is what it is. I'm not trying to be perfect. And um, the good news is that there's like, we are not in this alone, right? Like you are not the single person fighting for equity in the triathlon space. I'm not sure. the single person, right? So like when I don't want to do it, like it'll be okay. <laughs> and I'm wondering about your own journey too. Like as a young person, do you have any memory of like a moment or a series of moments where you first sort of noticed that like black folks are excluded from outdoor spaces or mm. from running in particular like do you have some like you know stories or is it just kind of gradual that you noticed yeah I mean there are things that stick out to me for sure I remember in high school when um I'd be you know in track practice that the white people would they were always doing like 5k distances and they would just like disappear for what seemed like forever at track practice. And we would do like 20 to 30 minutes and we'd be done. Right. I mean, 20, 30, like intense minutes, then you go to the weight room and like, it was just always so interesting. And I went to a mostly white school, um, but to see the division along the color line, right. Or showing up at the, the big track meets when we'd, you know, I was in a, private school. So we were in the parochial league and then we would show up at these like county or um, state meets. And then you'd see like the massive well-supported track teams where they'd have like a hundred sprinters and jumpers and they were all black and they'd have a hundred 5k, you know, people and they'd all be white. And it, it would just be like, whoa, does anybody else see this? Like, do we really think that all the black people just are better <laughs> And like this and all the white people, right? Like mm-hmm. um, that was very clear to me. Um, but growing up, like when I was younger than that, that, you know, I knew that I, like, I like to play outside, but I didn't think of myself as an outdoors person. Like I was climbing trees. I was doing all kinds of outdoorsy stuff, but I was just outside. Outdoors was always something that we reserved, uh, that I reserved for white people, for people doing like epic things and ultra beautiful places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Did you have a moment where you like decided to become an advocate? Or do you see yourself as that? Or like, did that, did that just happen over time? So I mean, I think that's just like, there's a piece of it that that's just who I was born to be. Like, my parents tell me stories from when I was very young. And I see that in my son now, too. Like, I didn't understand it when they told me, like, what do you mean? Like, you knew that was me. And now I see my son and I'm like, oh, my God, it is so clear who my son is going to be. Right. Like, unless the world messes him up. But um, he is just like, he, and now I'm going off topic again, but like he has, he gets really into certain things. Like first it was socks and he had like hundreds of socks and like had to sleep with his socks. And now it's pieces of tape. And last night I was sleeping in his room on the floor 
And I just like, there's a bookshelf. And I just looked up and I was like, oh my God, there was like 50 little pieces of tape on the bookshelf over his head. (laughs) And like, he is like everybody in the class, like uh, swarms him. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is a, this kid is somebody that people are going to want to hear from and follow. And I was the same way. So um, that's just, and then it was nurtured by my parents always giving us history lessons at home and playing music from their cultures and supporting me and all of the things that I wanted to do. Right. So it was, um, I've always been this way and it's also been nurtured and I've had a lot of privilege that I had, um, you know, the opportunity to pursue lots of different parts of myself. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm always interested in, you know, I studied history a little bit. I'm always interested in like untold stories, you mm-hmm. know, are there like, there always are, I guess, but are there like uh, interesting and untold stories about like black women runners in the U S I mean, there's so many, I, I cover some of them in my book, but yeah. you know, Marilyn Bevins is somebody whose name should be known like Catherine Switzer, right? Like mm-hmm. she should, uh, she should be somebody who is always invited to speak, who has, um, things named after her who, or Wyoming Tyus, she is somebody who should have had endorsements all her life, you know, but, um, being black, being a woman in this country was then and remains now, um, something that's not prioritized or celebrated. So, um, you know, it's, there's so many, there's so many stories of, of people who never got their, their time to shine. Actually, a friend of mine, Amira Rose Davis, who's a historian and just an incredible person. She has a book coming out called um, Can't Eat a Metal, Stories of Women During the Jim Crow Era. I forget the subtitle, but it's about women like Wyoming Tyus, who Wyoming Tyus is the first person, male or female, to win back-to-back gold in the 100-meter dash. Mm. First of all, people don't attribute that to her. They tend to attribute it to Carl Lewis or a man. And second of all, she all she got was her medal, right? You can't eat a medal. Like she did not get endorsement deals. She did not make uh, have the opportunity to really ex- have a long career in the sport because of the gym living through Jim Crow era, where Jim Crow era and um, you know when women didn't have rights, so she had to pursue something else. But imagine being one of the greatest of all time and having nothing to show for it in a material sense or in an, in a, um, sense of being celebrated. Yeah. Wow. I bet there's tons of stories. Yeah. 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 Um, and tell us a little bit about your own journey into running too. I think I read somewhere that, you know, you had your own mental health issues. That's something that I strongly relate to as well. Like what does running do for you in your life? Yeah. So I started running in, um, I mean, I was, I was a sprinter growing up and I ran the 400 and the 400 meter hurdles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found, started running distance in 2012. I was very depressed, but I saw on Instagram or Instagram didn't even exist. Or if it did, I wasn't on it. I saw on, on Facebook, mm-hmm. a friend of mine was training for a marathon and he was a black guy is a black guy and was like, you know, 200 pounds, five, eight, like not a skinny person. And I was really struck by that. Cause I had never seen that. I thought that, you know, if you were a marathoner, if you were a regular person, you were white and thin. And if you were um, the only black people I knew who ran marathons were East Africans. So to see him running really struck me. And a year later, I ended up signing up for the same program that he was in team and training and raising money for a nonprofit. And I found that it really brought me back to myself. It showed me that I was capable of taking on big challenges that if I broke it up into small parts, I could, you know, um, celebrate small wins while moving towards this larger goal. And it, you know, it's the only reason why I'm still here. And once I experienced that, I, you know, I finished the marathon race over $5,000 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I decided that I wanted to share that experience with other people. And I started a running group and it really, you know, if I could have told myself then that this is where I'd be. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I would never even believe it because um, I was really, it was just this very personal moment for me of my life being saved and transformed and wanting other people to experience that. 
And what gets you out the door now? Like today, you just came back from a run. What's what's your motivation? So I gave birth three and a half years ago. And okay. for the past three and a half years, I've kept feeling like, oh, now I feel good. Mm-hmm. But I realize now that I never actually felt good. So now I feel good. <laughs> and I'm finally like I um, I'm training for a bunch of races this spring. And it just feels so good to be able to move my body like I my body's very different than it was before I gave birth and I'm finally starting to like this body and not just because of what it can do but because you know it's a body right like I actually just I'm thankful for it and not every day like some days I um really wish that I could go back in time or I think wish I had appreciated a different version of myself but um running makes me feel powerful um, it makes me feel connected with myself and, um, I'm just happy to be enjoying it again. I didn't think it was possible. Yeah. You mentioned there that you, you've sort of, uh, come to enjoy being in your own body. Um, how did that shift happen? Like, is that something mentally for you or the things that you tell yourself that you change, that you changed? Yeah, totally. I think it's a, it's a lot of different things. I mean, it's three and a half years, I guess is not a long time, but it's, it's felt like forever in this journey <laughs> for myself. Um, but I really was my initial models or additional, um, images of people being pregnant, running, and then getting back to running, um, was so distorted by like who I was following and who was in my circle. Right. It was, it was either like Olympians who I knew, (laughs) like friends of mine who were getting back to training and I was comparing myself to like Alicia Montano and Allison Felix, which is ridiculous because we actually were not at the same starting point. So how could we then, you know, how could I end up where they were after um, giving birth? So there was that. Um, and then there was also just the fact that in society, we don't talk about like change. Like we don't talk about the fact that thing, like nothing about you stays the same, not your body, not your beliefs, not your right? Anything. And so I just wasn't prepared for the fact that I had changed and wasn't going to go back to who I was. So I think it's been um, being patient with myself, surrounding myself with um, more people who have different stories around giving birth and postpartum, um, diversifying who I watch or who I look at on social media, right? Like, um, people who are not, you know, like people like Lizzo, honestly, like who are not, she's like, I'm not, I, I'm not, I shouldn't be celebrated for the fact that I'm fat and I love myself. Like that is not a cause for celebration. Like fat people like their bodies, right? This idea that fat, all fat people wish they were not fat is just untrue. <laughs> so, and she also says that her body is like the least interesting part of her, right? So being around not being around, I wish I could be around Lizzo, but um, surrounding myself with social media, with literature, with different media in general that um, talks about being healthy at every size and um, expands my my views of myself. Even, you know, being uh, talking to disability activists who remind me that this obsession with the body and what it does is really ableist, right? Because there are people who don't, whose bodies don't do anything and that doesn't make them bad people or make their life um, inspiring or right. Like a body is just a, a, a container. So I've um, mostly like education has helped me on my journey. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. 
and I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match. And then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule, how much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedda's have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. 
you can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Can I ask about your postpartum uh, journey? We had, yeah. you know, we had a couple episodes a while back that were, we, where we interviewed a researcher and also an athlete who was actually, she's 35 weeks pregnant when I, when I interviewed her who would continue to train, but you know, this, this researcher had been part of a study where they looked at 42 elite athletes and looked at their training logs during and after pregnancy. So like a lot of the focus of the um, interview was around like, what these elite athletes had done. Um, but I'm, I was like very mindful, like coming out of that, that like, it's not, that's not necessarily everyone's story. Like what was, what was your, like, it sounds like it was kind of transformational for you a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, and look, I'm so glad that there's more research, that there's research period being done on people, pregnant people and people postpartum, because think about how long civilization has existed. And that research is only just beginning like in the past, three, four years. Right. (laughs) But that research is so limited because when you do research on elite athletes, um, typically research is done on white people, right? Like the, the, um, the results are not transferable to a large population and yet they're used in a way as though they should be right. So, Glad there's research. The research is still very problematic. Um, we talk about that a lot in in um, we talked about it a lot in my in my mental health um, schooling, just about like these norm groups again, right? So much is extrapolated from this research, but if the norm group is really homogenous, then how could that apply to everybody? Um, but for me, I mean, I couldn't. I actually had to stop running uh, like 16 weeks pregnant because. Every time I moved at a certain intensity, um, I started bleeding and I went to the emergency room like three times thinking I had miscarried, but it was that there was this additional thing. My body was growing a lot of things at the same time. They were growing like massive fibroids that were outpacing the size of my son. And then there was also this just like additional thing growing in my body that was bleeding. So uh, my doctors told me that I uh, shouldn't move and that was really devastating because I thought that running was going to be a big part of my pregnancy. And then also that meant that I was gaining even more weight, right? Which um, despite the fact that you're, you have a literal baby, you're somehow supposed to only gain a certain amount of weight, right? Like there's so many things that we're told. <laughs> that oh, we it's certain to places. Yeah. yeah. Like, like so, the belly's like, okay, but your arm needs to be ripped, you know? <laughs> like what? And it's like, you're only supposed to gain 25 pounds when you're pregnant. Like that is just so outrageous to me anyway. So then I gained like twice that. Um, And then postpartum, I was very, very, I struggled with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. So I didn't want anybody to hold the baby. I thought that the baby, I thought that Corey was going to die. I thought that I was going to squish him, that I was going to throw him off the roof. Like all of these things made it very difficult postpartum. And then I was never sleeping. So then when I felt like, oh, I feel good, I can go for a run, I was exhausted. And it, I just got into this cycle of feeling like I could never do anything right. And um, and also like not really liking my son because he was the reason, <laughs> right? Like he was sucking all the life out of me to the point that I couldn't do things that I enjoyed. Um And I want to normalize that experience, right? Like that is actually a super normal thing for people after they give birth, but something that we don't talk about. So now I don't, I I do want another child. I don't know what I, if I want to go through that again, but I at least recognize that that's a possibility, which is uh, I'm in a better position now than I was before. Right. You can be better equipped. Um, What happens again? How did you get yourself out of that postpartum depression phase? Uh, well, my husband said to me, like, Allison, there's something very wrong with you. Mm. <laughs> he was like, I don't want to be around you. Mm-hmm. So you need to like call somebody or do something. So I um, and me and my my mom was staying with us and me and my mom were fighting. And it was it was just like a lot. So I spoke to a therapist. And this is despite like I was a trained therapist myself, right? So it just speaks to the fog, how um, powerful mental health issues can be. Like none of us are are 
free from that. And um, I was on medication already and they doubled my medication. And that immediately helped because a lot of the postpartum experience is because of the chemicals in your body, right? Like the hormones, things are just at a very different level than they normally are. So increasing my medication helped. And then um, getting out the door when we could, right? Because then we very quickly ended up in COVID times. But um, getting outside for walks, just like being outside was really helpful for me. And having experiences where I was outside with the baby and the baby wasn't harmed because all of the, there was all of this stuff in my head telling me that the baby was going to die all the time. So um, yeah, it was a slow process, but thankfully my husband said that to me because I know people who struggle through postpartum depression and anxiety for years and um, before they seek help or before there's an intervention. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's, and it implies support, right? Like when someone says something to you, you know, typically they're, they're also going to be there to support you. Um, exactly. exactly. Wow. And I can only imagine how scary that was for my husband because I was like bananas. <laughs> my husband probably should have feared for his life in that moment, but <laughs> shout out to him for saying what needed to be said. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, okay. Do you have a new program? I want to call it maybe called meaning through movement. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So meaning through movement is a tour that combines conversations around mental health, sometimes with therapists or mental health experts, um, other times with like leading voices and um, movement. And so what I recognize was that there has not really been spaces where we talk about mental health things like um, body image and eating disorders, things like um, trauma, things like um, uh, race and um, gender. Like there's not a lot of spaces within running where we talk about things, despite the fact that all those things impact our ability to run and move and feel fulfilled. So and sometimes the reason that we're there in the exactly. first place. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to create a space where we would talk about those things and we would also move and um, just normalize the fact that these conversations happen, right? Like you're not strange or you're not the only person. And I know that 10 years ago when I started running, if there had been a space where people were talking about mental health, um, I maybe could have gotten to where I am today faster, right? Like maybe right. could realize like, oh, it's actually quite common to have depression and anxiety. And wow, a lot of people are actually here because they have depression and anxiety. So that is my goal for the series. And this year I'll have an event at uh, the weekend of the Boston Marathon. I'll have an event in August in LA, um, September in Philly. And um, hopefully the last event is in New York, but it'll be four in-person events this year. Cool. I love that so much. I mean, I often think this, like when we're, you know, cause like as, a, as humans, we look for meaning in our work, right? Like what better thing can we do than like kind of pave the path to make things easier in the places that were difficult for us to make things easier for those coming behind. And that sounds like exactly what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, you know, and it's, um, I know that this is also not a framework that everybody has because, some people think like I suffered, therefore you should suffer. You got to go true. through the, right. And it's like, come on. <laughs> no, like if you, if it was that hard for you and you gained some Intel, why not eat, lighten the load? Right. So recognizing also that that's not how everyone feels and that's not actually how every industry works, you know? So. Yep. That's what we're grateful for people like you doing, <laughs> doing that work. Oh, you also have a PBS a show on PBS. Yes, that was a complete um, surprise in my life. I um, had been on a panel with this woman, Sarah Menzies, and she's a filmmaker, producer, director, awesome person. She found out that I was moving to Seattle and she reached out and asked if I wanted to host a TV show. And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> like, um, And it's been really cool. I got to, uh, she asked me like what I would want the show to be about. And I said that I wanted it to be about, um, you know, me moving from New York, coming to Seattle and wanting to connect with other people of color in the outdoors and see how they were um, creating organizations and claiming space. And it's been a lot of fun. Um, season one was great. We're now filming season two. And the coolest part of it is that um, each episode I get to actually participate in 
whatever activity these people do. So last season I was kayaking and fly fishing and hiking. And this season I'm going to be skiing and surfing. Like it's, it's so cool for me personally (laughs) and for um, visibility and, um, you know, lots of people are, it's actually being used in classrooms, even teachers showing um, kids of color that, you know, these opportunities are available to them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where can we watch it? So you can watch it on kcts9.org or crosscut.com. It airs live Thursdays um, in the Pacific Northwest. So if you're in Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, um, I think that's all the PNW. You can watch it live. (laughs) But otherwise, yeah, you can watch the full season. Um, You can stream it on crosscut.com or kcts9.org. Okay, I will get our producer to look those up so that people have the link. I'm in I'm in British Columbia, so oh, cool. I'll, I'll be okay. able to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, before I moved here, Canada was just Canada and there was <laughs> Toronto. And now right. I'm like, okay, I have a sense. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I love it. Um, okay. I where else can we find you? Where can we buy the book? First of all, what's the best place to support you in, in that? Yeah, you can buy the book anywhere. Um, people ask me all the time and I really appreciate that. But um, unfortunately, fortunately, it's all the same. So you could buy Running Well Black anywhere. If you want an autographed or signed copy, you can either show up at an event that I'm at and you can find those events at allisonmdesir.com or at my website, you can also purchase a book from me directly and I will sign it and ship it. Um, so you can buy it anywhere, but if you want it personalized, you go to my website and you can find me on Instagram at allisonm as in Mary Desir. Awesome. Well, Alison, thank you so, so much for chatting with us today. Really appreciate you and all the work that you do and sharing your wisdom. So thank you. Yeah, it went by so quickly. Uh, Mm -hmm. Thank you you for the chat. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you made it easy for me. (laughs) Thank you. 